0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb.
0: And my name is Julie Douglas. We
1: just finished recording an episode titled How to Think Like a Child, and now we're breaking into this idea that we are all scientists. And you're probably wondering, well, why are you guys hitting this information right now? Uh, and certainly we've touched on some of these topics before in the past, and it's because we're hitting the road with this act. Uh one week from now, uh, the, the time we're recording it, we're going to be at the E4 Conference, Excellence in Elementary Engineering uh, in the Twin Cities, and uh, we're going to give a keynote. And we're going to talk about this idea that we are all scientists, because we're going to be talking to elementary school teachers who are who want to engage with children and, and get them excited about science and engineering. And there's often this false idea that it's something alien to them. Where it's kind of like, let's get some children into a room and let's teach them to love sardines and broccoli. You know, let's, let's get them excited <laughs> about asper- asparagus. But no, it's, it's, it's something that they already have in them. And it's, uh, it, it's ultimately more about, about connecting with the inner scientist that is in all of us.
0: Right, we're going to make the case today that science is not a part of us. It is actually intrinsic to our nature. And I will say that uh, having worked on this podcast, I feel like uh, it's very interesting to look at science as something that is innate rather than, as I've mentioned before, looking through the windows of science. Uh, because I feel like this podcast has really informed uh, my worldview on how it's not apart from us how every gesture, word, thought can be pinned back to what you know we've often talked about the magic of reality. Yeah. And when I say the magic of reality, it's this idea that a single-celled organism created an unbroken Lineage extending forth in time four billion years until we are sitting here before you guys recording our voices. To me, that is amazing. And it all points back to the fact that um, science has helped frame our understanding of how we came to be in this world, um, as well as why things are the way that they are.
1: So as we discussed in the previous podcast about being like a child, one of the big things here is that as, as we get older and as we become adults, we take on all these different worldviews. We take on all these preconceived notions of how what the world is and how it works, about who we are, how do we fit into the world, what is our group, what is our society, who are the others, what laws are in place that we're obeying, what laws are in place that we're neglecting, what laws are in place that the, the other guys and gals out there should be obeying but are not. Uh, all these complex, illusory ideas, we end up building this, this fortress of ideas through which we try to understand the world around us.
0: And we use a lot of labels, right? Right. Like you begin to understand yourself as you're growing up, right? And you people say that you're good at X, Y, or Z. Yeah. And then You're a
1: liberal, you're a conservative, you're you're in the middle. You're you're a creative or number minded. You're you're very sensible. Uh you know we end up taking on all these labels, pinning them to our jacket, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and that's who we are, and that's what the world is.
0: Now, but I would argue that in addition to what other label, or the many labels that we can uh, put on ourselves, we are all inherently engineers. Right. Okay. Now, think, you're probably like, I don't know what you're talking about, I don't use blueprints, or maybe I do use blueprints, but...
1: I don't build things, I don't, I don't design things. things. Yeah,
0: but no, think about your childhood and think about uh, tree houses or building. You don't even have to build a tree house. It could be anything. Oh, Legos. Anything. Legos. Legos. Think Legos. of all the
1: things that if you're a Lego person like I was, and, and I am not an engineer. like <laughs> I have to check things two or three times when I do simple calculations with a Google calculator. You know, I'm that type of person. I'm more of a you know, liberal arts person. But as a child, I had the vat of Legos and I'd build everything under the sun. You know, uh, I'd see a helicopter. I'd have to build that helicopter. Then I'd have to crash the helicopter. Because we shot right. down by another one that was the evil helicopter. But then I would build another one, and then it would be maybe I'd build, build, build a building or a tank. I mean, so even as, as a child playing with blocks, or even if we're not playing with actual physical blocks, we're we're building things, we're building stories, we're building ideas, we're engineering something. When we are engaging in play,
0: well, you're also learning how the world works, how gravity works, right? right? Um If you don't stack those blocks in a way that can support the weight, then whatever you're creating is going to fall or uh, just not work out so great. Every kid for wants
1: you. to build a giant tower, but you quickly learn that you've got to you got to figure out how the base is going to work. You mm-hmm. got to build a broader base to make the tower go up all the way. Otherwise, it's just going to be blocks falling over and making a loud noise.
0: Yeah, I see. That. I've seen this so many times with kids. Yeah. And, and, and kids can, by the way with legos and i know everybody knows this but really they can create some of the most uh some of the coolest most innovative buildings i've ever seen because mm-hmm. they will take these risks and put things where they're not really supposed to go but then they, again they figure out um how things are weighted so again we don't think about it but this is really the mind of an engineer at play and by the way kids are also born euclideans so when I say kids are this, that also means that we are Euclideans. And when I say Euclideans, I mean that we use geometric clues to navigate the world.
1: Because, yeah, bottom line, we are born into a world of numerous fixed and movable objects. We live in a, in a world of space and time as a creature. you know, If you're a human and you're listening to this, this applies to you. If you're, if you're a cat and you're listening to this, or a dog... This applies to you, though, though, and kudos for understanding an English-language podcast. But you have to engage in this world that is physical, that has space, that has time, that has physical laws uh, governing what goes on. So part of our, our evolutionary advantage is our ability to understand that world and interact with it. And to do that, we have to have a certain amount of number sense, a certain understanding of how physics work, more or less inborn. We've discussed in the past uh, their concepts, such as say teleportation. You try and uh, right, you try yeah. and, and sell a kid on the idea that teleportation exists. They're not going to believe it because they already have it in them, in their They're inborn this disbelief in the in the idea that that could even be possible because it doesn't conform to reality. To believe in something like that, you have to painstakingly build this fortress of ideas and beliefs as an adult, and then you can make the impossible seem plausible.
0: Right, because even little babies know about object permanence, meaning that I could have two cups. In one cup, I could deposit two cookies. In another cup, I could pretend to be depositing cookies. Same motions and everything. Mm -hmm. They will always want the one with the actual cookies in it. They understand that that is... Uh, mimicking that uh, that is not object permanence. Uh, in addition, kids using geometric clues, uh, they're more likely to use the lengths of walls in a room to remember where a toy is hidden. and this is true of kids even at ages three and four when they can name the color of the wall um, to orient themselves. They still navigate rooms by length references. I also see this with my daughter at play with puzzles. you know she she'll be four in January and, She loves to put together puzzles using solely the shape. Now, she can read and she can use, uh, the colors to try to piece together the clues of how they fit together, but always, and this drives me crazy because to me, I'm oriented in the other way where I'm like, hey, that says, that's part of the, you know, North Carolina for the, for the map. Um, she will always try to see how it fits together. And this is really interesting. Kids that play with puzzles between the ages of 2 and 4 perform significantly better in spatial tests by ages 5 and 6. And again, this is this idea that they can mentally transform shapes. And this turns out to be a really big predictor of abilities in science, technology engineering and mathematics, what we call STEM.
1: Another inborn ability that kids have that uh, adults forget and then have to relearn is Bayesian logic. Bayesian logic is a branch of uh, probability theory that allows one to model uncertainty about the world and outcomes of interest in that world uh, related to common sense knowledge and observational evidence. Mm-hmm. So this is a concept that plays heavily into statistical evaluation of things such as uh, ongoing elections, et cetera, any kind of situation where there's a, there's a certain degree of chaos or unpredictability. It's also something that is key to our creation of AIs, of artificial intelligence, because we want to create something that thinks intelligently and can analyze the world and create believable uh, recommendations on what's going to happen. So we're using Bayesian logic to create the machines that will solve the problems of the future, but Bayesian logic is already present in children. Experiments have shown that when a child looks at the world, they're able to weigh the observational data and the statistical data that they have observed in a way that is free of the conflicting judgments that adult humans bring to the table.
0: Yeah, I mean, much like looking at a puzzle and seeing what fits and what doesn't, uh, Bayesian logic necessitates that children use a pattern of co-variation. Co-variation meaning correlated variation of two or more variables. And we talked about this Blicket machine in the last podcast, How to Think Like a Child. And this Blicket machine is something that is lit up when you place an object on it. This object can be various shapes, sizes, colors. And kids will, again, use this co-variation correlated variation of two or more variables to realize that if they do this then this happens Mm -hmm. if they do that then that happens now by the way these objects aren't static meaning that um you know it's not just the red squares that make the machine go you know Mm -hmm. it could be the orange squares that have blue dots on them or the triangle and so on and so forth. So they are taking in a lot of data and trying to figure out, you know, like these three types of shapes that are this color mm-hmm. and this configuration stacked on top will make this machine go. That's actually pretty sophisticated. And as we mentioned last time uh, in our podcast in How to Think Like a Child, kids are actually better in this exercise of figuring out how certain toys work on the Blicket machine than adults are.
1: Which brings us to Mathematics. And this is a big one. As adults, so many of us, myself included, throw any kind of thing mathematical at us being figuring out how to split a bill at a dinner party or trying to figure out uh, – I've got it down now. But for a while there, I didn't even understand how to properly figure tip before I figured out just do 20%. I'm generally that bad at math. And so we often fall into this idea that that, that we're born bad at math and that we just simply fail to learn it. And certainly there's a whole case to, to be made about – what needs to be done to, to engage children, engage students uh, more um, thoroughly in mathematics. But-
0: and I do want to mention, too, that there is no gender difference in abilities in science and math. Right. And this has been something, a subject that comes up again and again. But if you want more information on it, uh, check out Elizabeth Spelke, S-P-E-L-K-E, and uh, her debate with Steven Pinker on this point and the 30-odd years of research into child development in which she makes the case that this does not exist. This is some cultural garbage that we tend to heap on yeah. to kids.
1: because, again, we all have to interact with the same world. We're all organisms that have all the, the equipment to interact with that world, and part of that is a number sense, okay? So... Our brains naturally extract numbers from the surrounding environment in, in the same way that we identify colors, all right? Uh, we call it number sense, and our brains come fully equipped with it from birth. In fact, studies even show that while infants have no grasp of human number system, you know, an infant doesn't know what 5 is, doesn't know what 10 is, but they can tell the difference between 5 and 10 on, on, a, on a non-numerical level because they can tell uh, identify a change in quantity. Show a kid 5 cookies and a kid 10 cookies, and they will know the difference. They have, There is an inborn math that governs the, that kind of quantity uh, differential.
0: Yeah, they are essentially born accountants, and you'll see this with babies who can estimate quantities and distinguish between more and less. And, uh, for instance, in an experiment in which babies were shown an array of four dots mm-hmm. and then an array of 12 dots. Turns out that they will pay attention to the four dot sequence when four sounds are played, mm-hmm. okay, correlating that. And they will gaze at the twelve dots when the twelve sounds are played. Even when the sounds are manipulated in terms of the note length. The kids still know, babies still know that twelve noted song has to do with the twelve dots, and that four noted song has to do with the four dots.
1: Yeah, we can even drag in neuroimaging research into it, and we found that when you when you look at an infant's brain when they're say looking at the five cookie, ten cookie uh, difference, they're actually engaging in logarithmic counting. All right, counting based on uh, integral increases in physical quantity.
0: And this is so cool. Apparently, this is something uh, that we move away from as we get older. This logarithmic thinking, because we think in different modes of mathematics. But again, root to the baby, root to children is this logarithmic thinking.
1: So we end up uh, taking on human number systems. But the thing is, again, the human number systems are, even this is not something that's coming from the outside. It's, it's something that's coming from within. Uh, at some point in our ancient past, prehistoric humans began to develop a means of augmenting their natural number sense. All right? They started counting on their fingers and toes. And that's why so many numerical systems depend on groups of 5, 10, or 20. Uh, So base 10 or decimal systems stem from the use of both hands, while base 20 or vigisimal systems are based on the use of fingers and toes.
0: Yeah, these vigisimal systems, I think, are really interesting. Uh, Larger numbers are simply multiples of 10, right? Uh, Because that would be a base of 10 system. For example, 10 tens make 100. And uh, we're so used to our base 10 system that it may seem like the only possibility, but the Greenlandic number system has a base of 20, and others have a base of 5. And of all the number systems ever invented, 5, 10, and 20 are the most common. So again, if you doubt that mathematics is something that is inherent to you, all you have to do is look down at your fingers. In fact, in Greenland, the word for seven, which is pronounced Arfinek Marluk, or something like that, translates as second hand too. Okay, so you put one hand up and then two fingers from, from the next hand. And then 13 is translated as first foot three, meaning both of your hands plus your first foot three toes. So again, our digits, our fingers, just even think about the terminology, have been the gold standard for how we itemize the world around us.
1: All right, we're going to take a quick break on that note. And when we come back, we're going to shift a little outside of the mathematical understanding of the world. And we're going to get into a little something called storytelling.
0: Because, believe it or not, storytelling is science. Now, before we move on to storytellers, I was just reminded, uh, as you were talking in the sponsored message, about mathematics and certain truths that they hold. And I was <laughs> thinking about the Fibonacci numbers, which is that sequence of numbers, the golden ratio that we see again and again in nature.
1: Yeah, it's like in a snail shell. It's in some cauliflower. It, it, you see this mathematical truth making itself evident just throughout the world. In, right. and, and and in the cosmos
0: and on your body right mm-hmm. because even the the ratio between your hand the length of your hand and the length of your arm and the length of your arms to the height of your body or even the space between your eyes and your nose and your mouth these are all predicated on the golden ratio so again inherent within the blueprint are numbers
1: yeah we have in a past episode we did about mathematics we asked a question is mathematics a human discovery or a human invention where we really go into the the philosophical deep end uh, about this, because it's really a fascinating question. Again, mathematics, as we've discussed, is something that comes from within. But is it something that is purely a human creation based on what is inside us, or is it something that really permeates every aspect of the universe?
0: Right. Is it the tail wagging the
1: dog? Yeah. Yeah, it's really mind-blowing stuff. But we're, we're moving a little beyond mathematics at this point, and we're getting into something called storytelling. Storytelling is, of course, as old as human language. The idea that we can set down and we can tell a narrative, that we can talk about this character and what they did, or these people and what they did, what challenge they overcame, how they came from point A to point B. And we naturally engage in it because the stories are linear. They have beginnings, they have middles, and they have ends. Much like... Our lives, much l- exactly like our lives, and exactly like our our experience of the world around us. So we naturally engage with stories.
0: Well, and, and within this, I think about the neocortex, this part of our brains that was lopped on, is pretty much an upgrade. Uh, to the human brain. Ice cream
1: style.
0: Ice cream yeah. style, swirled up high. It changed everything uh, because no longer did we have just our reptilian brain, which was really concerned or is concerned with basic survival instincts like mm-hmm. fear, but... With the neocortex, you have something that can manage so many different sophisticated complex elements of life, of modern life, from parenting to higher cognitive functions, like number systems in the parietal lobe, which which governs these number systems, and abstraction. So when I think about uh, number systems, I think about abstractions, because really that's what they are. Mm -hmm. And uh, these abstractions are stories, and these stories really are data. We're taking data, we're organizing it, and we're making it into a pattern that makes sense to us that can help explain our world. So when you think about storytelling, you don't normally think about it as involving science, but really you're, you're talking about some of the same basic principles at play.
1: So again, storytelling is how we see the world. I mean, on a very basic level, I've talked about this before, and this is where especially adults get in get into trouble and no i mean even in an early age you're, you're engaging with your ego you're creating a story about the world in which you are the central character and uh you so everyone's life uh, unless you can you can force yourself to think beyond it uh after a while it becomes this this very limited novel with this one character engaging with other people with their surroundings with various uh successes and disasters that uh that line the road to death that's a Nice. And, and, I'll get, and an <laughs> uplifting way of putting it. but I mean, that's what, kind of what comes when you, when you end up viewing the world that way. But we end up viewing the world that way. So st- telling other stories uh, ends up being this interesting way of tweaking that worldview um, in a way that can be both good and bad. There's a book called Tell to Win, Connect, Persuade, and Triumph with the Hidden Power of Story by uh, film executive uh, Peter Guber. And uh, he makes this argument that, that stories function as Trojan horses. All right. We all know the idea of the Trojan horse, right? Mm-hmm. So you have uh, you have the city of Troy. Uh, the uh, the opposing army wants to get inside that besieged city. So how do you do it? You give them a gift, a fabulous wooden horse. Hidden away in that horse's belly happens to be uh, a small group of soldiers. And after after uh, the, the lights go off, after the sun goes down, they're going to creep out of the belly of that horse, unlock the gates, and let the rest of the army in. So. The idea here is that, uh, and we've discussed this about the power of storytelling before, you know, when, when you have a story that contains a different idea, a different way of seeing the world, it can kind of uh, virally infect our worldview. And we end up trusting an idea more if it's presented to us in the form of a story. Which is why you see, uh, we've, we've talked about the importance of sitcoms, to so just in popular history, mm-hmm. uh, or, or, or novels as well. When you engage a new cultural idea in the form of a narrative, we're more likely to take it in, to eat it, than we are if someone says, hey, here's a way you should maybe view the world. Why don't you do this? And then we're, people are going to double down. They're going to say, no, no, that's not the way I view the world at all. Present in a story, however, that's the spoonful of sugar on the medicine.
0: Yeah, but I would, I would actually argue that every single scientific paper that's ever been published has a Trojan horse of sorts in the narrative. In other words, something that happens that's a surprise that turns our assumptions on its head, right? Right. Because, because you've
1: got to have conflict in a story for it to yes. be good. Nobody wants to read a story about, hey, there was this person they marry and everything happened the way it needed to happen. It was, a, you know, you need some sort of conflict where suddenly something doesn't happen. There's a fall from grace or there's a conflict that had, or some sort of, of enemy that has to be overcome. I mean, that's the stuff of great narrative. No one wants to read three long books about Bilbo sitting at home drinking tea and crumpets.
0: This is true. This is true. Something has to happen. Change has to occur in order for the reader to better understand him or herself in the greater world around them, right? And Mm -hmm. this, I think, if you look at pretty much every publication of a paper, there's going to be something within it, even if it's something like in a a paper that ended up in Ignoble, right, Mm -hmm. which we did a couple of podcasts There's always
1: a story. Like, there's the story of the guy that said, hey, there was a dead duck outside my window, and then another duck came and started copulating with that dead duck, and he had to make sense of it. So there's the study. There's the story. There's a man, in, in, in encountering a, a mystery in the world,
0: well, <laughs> and in having some,
1: to overcome it, having to solve it, having to and analyze it,
0: and learning something from it. Yes, right. So that's what the, the basis of storytelling is yeah, about. You, you don't you, want, learn.
1: you generally when you engage with a story, you want a character that's going to learn and grow, or on the opposite, you want a character maybe that doesn't learn and grow, but that's that's still part and partial to who that person is and getting to know that care.
0: So I'm actually thinking about the paper that was published by the kids. We talked about this on how to think like a child. And uh, Bo Lotto, who did the TED Talk about it, and those kids were trying to find out whether or not humans and insects had uh, things in common in terms of the way that they think, the way that they forage, that they organize. Is it possible that insects could have as complex thought processes as humans? And this was the story they were after. And they got their Trojan horse because they found out that these bees were foraging in ways that we had never known before, that, that were really nuanced. They changed the conditions, and they could adapt. And again, you have a story about how, A, we're not that far from from the the rest of the natural world. In other mm-hmm. words, a lot of the blueprint of who we are comes from everything around us. Right. That there's, there's something intrinsic to bees that is intrinsic to us. Right. And, uh, so you get this idea of how the natural world orders itself, but also that kids can think critically. That's the other part of this story, uh, that has to do with this published paper. That kids can see, uh, through the mind of a scientist and in fact do so every day. It is again something that is not apart from them. It is underscoring this idea that we are all inherently scientists. Robert
1: Krolwich, co-host of Radio Lab, a great uh, science podcast that we listen to and, and I think a number of our listeners listen to as well, he gave a great uh, keynote a few years back on the importance of storytelling to the scientific community, which was really, really great talk, really inspiring talk whether you stand on the inside or outside of a scientific institution, uh, because he was he was very much uh, going with this idea of storytelling as a Trojan horse. His whole thing was, if you're a scientist and you're engaging with, with people, and someone asks you what you do, what, what are you studying, what are you, what's your research consisting of, don't blow them off. Don't just say, ah, you wouldn't understand it. Try and explain it to them, and try to explain it as a story, because narrative is powerful. And if, you, if the scientists are not telling a story that makes sense, if they're not telling a story about how the world works... Then there are going to be other competing stories out there, stories that stem from myth, stories that stem from uh, religious or spiritual views of the world, stories that stem from just complete Internet-generated quackery. Uh, We've all received emails like that about how Mars is going to be as big as the moon in the night sky and other such nonsense, about how Satanists in your area are going to kidnap your cat on Halloween. The list goes on and on. But all the quack ideas out there, they already have narratives. And some of these, these ideas are old. We've been telling some of these stories since the beginning of human history. And so science has to compete with those. So we need science to tell stories. We need to engage with students and with adults People of all ages with a science that is wrapped in narrative.
0: Yeah, and I because you know, we we've talked about how in the past the human storytelling has really revolved around mysticism. Yes, and we've defined ourselves in these in these ways. Uh, we think about mysticism more as a creative expression now, right. but there's still a, a bit of that. We do,
1: but there, that cannot be said for everyone in the world.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, it's still in the cultural fabric. So um, I think if we can begin to understand. Ourselves in these different terms, as these uh, Euclidean space uh, explorers, uh, and looking down at our fingers and realizing that we have ordered an entire world around digits, numbers. Then again, we can begin to understand that this is not something that is separate from us.
1: Yeah. We're born scientists, and that's something we need to cultivate, we need to nurture, and we don't need to learn to be something other than a scientist as we grow. All right. Well, on that note, let's call over the robot and get a little bit of listener mail. All right. This one comes to us from Pedro. Pedro writes in and says, Hey, Julian Robert, I'm a truck driver. We have a number of those. So always nice to hear from the the truckers out there. I'm a truck driver and recently started to listen to your awesome podcast. I literally have listened to most of your podcasts to date in about a week. Wow. (laughs) Uh, Anyhow, I finally got home and wanted to write to you guys and share a little story that popped into mind when I heard the Gigantism episode. Julie mentioned on the topic of hissing cockroaches that she thought there might be flying cockroaches. Yes, I grew up in Puerto Rico, and in my native town, Vega Baja, as a teen, I moved to a more isolated part of town near a farm close to the tree line of a jungle-like part of the island. Uh, It was in the twilight hours, and my father and I were standing on our porch when something hit me in the face. More like slapped me. My father kidded that it was a bat, which freak, freaked me out enough. But when we turned on a few lights, I was surprised by a whole bunch of huge, disgusting, flying cockroaches. Not one of the selling points of my wonderful island. Anyway, I love the <laughs> podcast, and I'm only disappointed in the fact that I'm almost up to date on them.
0: All right, so is he saying that these cockroaches are hissing cockroaches with wings?
1: Yeah, I, that's that's what he's saying.
0: Okay, because I know about the palmettos. Mm-hmm. Uh, and which... those
1: suckers can get big, even here in Georgia.
0: Yeah, Put the hissing cockroach it's three or more inches with wings. Yeah. Hissing at you as it comes. I guess so. And unless lands was, in your ear canal. Unless
1: there was a kid out there in the shadows with a slingshot just pelting the porch with these things, but I doubt it.
0: All right. Yeah. All right. Something to add to uh, to the nightmares. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, um, you can certainly add to our nightmares, and you can add to a listeners' nightmares by. By connecting with us, sharing your stories about your scientific understanding of the world and how you engage in science. And if you're a teacher, we'd love to hear your thoughts on engaging students in science. You can find us on Facebook and you can find us on Tumblr. We are stuff to blow your mind on both of those. And you can also seek us out on Twitter where our handle is Blow the Mind.
0: And you can drop us a line at blowthemind at discovery.com.